All right, so uh, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 73, and Xander's going to take over. We're pivoting as we go. That's what you have to do on the fly. It's the season of the flu, isn't it? The season, season of sickness, but the Lord knows, and we're going to trust His sovereignty in it all. So Psalm 73, Psalm 73 this morning. Um, I, you know, it's interesting. I didn't set my alarm because it's the one day. Of, usually I'm always up super early. Um, but we had a long day yesterday and a good long day, but it's the one day that I didn't set my alarm. And so I'm like, okay, I'll sleep in until like 7.38 when the kids get up. And, but the Lord woke me up at 6.30. So yeah, I have like an hour before the kids start starting. You're like, what are you going to teach on? Um, a bunch of different things. But this text, Psalm 73, is one for me personally in my life that I often come back to, that I often have to go and reorient my heart in. And so I think it's good for us to do that as a body of believers and as a church body as well. I was, you know, thinking about it and not that it's about this, but it's been, um, I think I've taught it here before. If I have, it's been years, um, at least over two years. So I'm going to trust that the Lord's going to speak to us, even if we have heard this before. Um, and I was just even thinking of that, like putting them, putting us back in remembrance of those things that we already know. And sometimes that's just the pastor's job and the minister's job. And so I'm trusted you're there by now. If you need a Bible, by the way, you can raise your hand. We have some guys in the back. If you ran out of the house without your Bible and you forgot it, no big deal. Um, we all do that. Just raise your hand. They'll grab you a Bible. But Psalm 73, and we're just going to read verse 1 before we read. Um, we start breaking down the text. So we see in verse 1 there, Asaph writes, Psalm of Asaph, Truly God is good to Israel to such as are a pure in heart. And Father, we thank you this morning, Lord, for your character. Lord, we thank you for your nature and who you are. And this morning, God, would you um, just minister us to us through your word, Lord, by your spirit. Lord, there's those who maybe have come in here hurting and, Lord, questioning your goodness. Lord, there's others who, Lord, um, are just questioning life or Christianity, perhaps. Lord, and then there's some of us who as I knock my water over, who, who are, um, Lord, no people in our lives, Lord, that are maybe asking these same questions. Or, Lord, maybe it's ahead of us, too, and we don't even realize it. So, Lord, would you minister to our hearts, Lord, by the truth of your word through your spirit this morning? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so, you know, I have a unique privilege of... Um, Working downtown, I guess I don't always call it a privilege when I um, have my commute home a few days a week when I'm downtown and, and you're in traffic and, and there's all these people and it takes time. But whenever I work downtown, I work in the U.S. Steel Building. So uh, most of you from Pittsburgh, I know that we have some people out of state here. But it's the biggest building, the tallest building downtown, the big black building. And my office is up on the 50th floor. So I have a pretty, pretty unique view. I am thankful for that. I get to see some pretty amazing sunrises. And you can see much of the landscape of Pittsburgh, the setting of Pittsburgh. I'm, the windows of where we are, because it's a triangle building, looks out um, towards Oakland. Kind of, you can see Mercy Hospital and then a little bit, uh, not quite the strip district, but it looks that way. And so, uh, me, if you know my background at all, I love um, construction. I love building things. I grew up, um, my dad and I would always do that, and we always were around machines. So I, I just love watching those sorts of things. And it's been pretty cool for about the past year to year and a half, 
right next to the steel building. If you've been downtown recently, the landscape's changing some. They're building a huge skyscraper, another building. Pittsburgh's not that big of a city. So, you know, one building that's getting built, it's, it's a little bit of excitement. But from my office, I get to watch them all day long as they were building, um, I think it's the uh, FNB, First National Bank, their new headquarters, which is kind of across the street from where the Pittsburgh Penguins play. And so for the past year, there's been all these cranes that have been there. They just disassembled them. Um, I don't know where Patrick is. He's probably out working, but I was talking to him about he runs some of those big cranes. Um, but there's all this equipment. There's these excavators, dump trucks everywhere. And you know, it took them a while to be able to start erecting the steel. And it took them a while to be able to start where the building actually looked like it was something. They spent months just moving dirt around and seemingly, um, from my perspective, having fun or what, you know, from someone who doesn't know what's going on, uh, quote unquote, wasting money as they were just moving everything back and forth and you would see new piles here and there. And then for a while, another couple of months, they brought in these machines that had tracks and, and it would have a huge pole on it with this huge auger, this like a, a giant drill bit looking thing on the end of it. And they would just sit there and all day long, it wouldn't even move. But you would see this slowly going down as they would bore these holes deep, deep into the, um, into the ground there. And then soon I would see all the cement trucks come and they would fill up the holes with the cement and have the rebar. What were they doing? See, for months and before they could even build anything that anybody else could see, they were boring deep down below the surface and they were having, there's these foundations, these pillars, this, this, um, strong place that this building, this new skyscraper would be built upon. It took a lot of time. It wasn't, um, exciting. It wasn't anything exciting for the eye to see. You know, nobody at that point was saying, wow, did you see the new building? They're like, what in the world's going on? Because nothing seems like it's happening, although there's a bunch of activity. But without those foundations, without those pillars, without going deep and spending much time and, and much resources, no doubt. Um, I don't know how much concrete is, but I know that everything seems like it's expensive. So I'm sure that it was a lot of money being poured into that so that now life and now something that is great could be built upon it. In this text that we're looking at this morning, as God um, speaks to us through Psalm 73, is one of those texts. Like I mentioned earlier, it's one of the texts that we often come back to because it teaches us one of the foundations of life, one of the foundations of God's character, and it's that God is good. Truly, God is good. And there's times in life we've all had it, and if you haven't had it, you will have it. I guarantee it where you question the goodness of God. Well, I, I can't reconcile. I can't make sense. If, if God is good, then why has this bad thing happened? Or if God is good, then, then why has the bad thing happened to my loved one? Or, or it doesn't feel like God is good. And, and how do we wrestle through these? And, and how do we deal with these times in our life? Because we've all been there. We've all been there. And that's what we're looking at this morning. And so even with that, I remember when I was in high school too, um, one of the kids that I graduated with, um, his, a shirt that he would often wear, and I don't think I see it, maybe it's um, because I'm in a different culture, being more in a suburban area and not out in the country, but I would often see shirts or um, stickers on people's car. You guys have seen this brand, Life is Good. 
Yeah? It's like the stick figures, and um, there would be like a soccer player, like a nice little family. And it was just all, I, I don't know why, but that I was always stuck in my head. And that is, that life is good, but there's also times when life is bad. Life isn't always good. There's times when life is painful. And there's times when life is confusing. And, and yes, we, we do, and, and, it's, and it's good to remember that life is good, but what do we do when sometimes we want to wear the sticker, and maybe we wouldn't wear this, or put the sticker on our car, or wear the shirt that says that my life's not so good right now. Have you ever been in that place? Most of us have. You see, what Psalm 73, what we're going to learn today, what the Lord's teaching us through His Word is this, is that no matter what our situation is and the goodness, how we define whether something is good or bad, is not based on our situations or our externals around us or even our feelings, but it's a character of God as His goodness. And that's the foundation that we build our life upon. I love this verse, and this is one of the key verses I think that um, just helps us understand this. It's this, Psalm 91.14. There the psalmist writes, Because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. See, when you know somebody's name, we can pick on Tim because he's not here and he can't defend himself, right? But I, no, that's not why we're going to do that. We'll just do that because most of us know him, right? Most of us have interacted with him. But when I say Tim, um, probably some of the first things that come to your mind is Ohio State or, or very energetic or friendly or just interested in, in others. See, his name is, represents who he is, his character, right? Trustworthy. Faithful, a friend, loving. And we, we can say that about others as, as you would uh, say somebody's name or you think about their name. It, it represents their character. That, that's what's brought to mind. What do you think of that person? And so even what the Lord is saying in Psalm 91 verse 14, I will set him on high because he has known my name. See, he's saying that when you and I know the character or the nature of God, God's character, he's unchanging. When you know that character, it will set you above the circumstances of life. It will set you above the difficulties of life. Not that it takes you out of it, but you can be in the midst of it and still be able to soar through it per se because you're resting on who He is. And it's unchanging. And it's beautiful. And so that's what we want to do. As, as, as we learn this morning of God's nature, of His character, of His goodness, we'll trust that He's going to minister and teach us more and more of His goodness. And so we see many people in the Bible who have dealt with the same question. If God is good, then why has this happened? Or, or, or again, trying to reconcile, trying to wrestle back and forth with the goodness of God and the circumstances of life. Remember Job? Job could probably um, relate a little bit. Remember, he was, he was a very rich man. He was even um, walking with God. He was a righteous man. And he would even sacrifice, go, go to the temple, or sorry, not the temple. There wasn't the temple yet, or the tabernacle. But he would go and he would make sacrifices, sin sacrifices for his whole family. And then one day, when they were, they probably, um, if it was me, like they went to Chick-fil-A, 
Or no, actually, if it was me, they probably went to Sam's Club, right, to get some pizza. And they were having a feast as a family. They were eating together. And then what happens? The, the, his servants come to him and, and they say that all of your kids have died. All of your livestock have been carried away by the enemies. Now all of the finances have crashed. All of your stocks, all of your investments, they're gone like this. Not only that, but then all your servants are gone except for me, right? And not, not only that, if, if it couldn't get any worse, then Job goes to his wife and, and I don't even know what, what would you say at that point, but his wife has something to say. Just curse God and die. Thanks, honey. I appreciate that counsel that you, uh, that you give to me. And so Job was dealing with that same exact thing. And there we see again this Psalm, Psalm 73, was written by Asaph. And we're going to see earlier, learn a little bit about Asaph. And he was one who was a worship leader at that time. And one of David's worship leaders. So start to put this in perspective. Do you see even those who are used by God, those who Asaph, we can say, was in formal ministry, had these same wrestlings in his heart? And so we shouldn't be surprised that we wrestle with those same things. We wrestle with those same questions. Maybe you serve in ministry somewhere in your church, or or maybe you're not in ministry, and you think that you would look at somebody, um, you can look at me, someone up here, someone who's leading worship, and you say, well, they never have those questions. They never have those same problems. But Asaph did, and he wrestled with it. Why are the wicked prospering? Why is everything going well for the wicked? Those who aren't following God, those who don't care, those who never go to church, those who lie, those who maybe cheat, everything's good for them. And he asked himself this question. It's, in, it's interesting too, um, just as, as you look at this, Psalm 73 starts the third book. So you know that the book of Psalms as a whole is divided into five books. And each one corresponds with one of the first five books of the Bible. What's the, what's the third book of the Bible? Leviticus. And so Leviticus, the whole purpose of Leviticus is how to be whole. And we see that sacrifice and worship um, is, is taught to Israel and how they can now enjoy the presence of God in, in these feasts, right? In these sacrifices. And Asaph's struggles is answered to as he went to the sanctuary to worship, we're going to see later. I just want to put this all into perspective. But the goodness of God, truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are a pure in heart. The Bible tells us in multiple places, it talks about the attribute, the goodness of God. We can read in Psalm 73, excuse me, Psalm, yeah, Psalm 73, one. You can read it there. Um, also Psalm uh, 27, verse 13, I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of God in the land of the living. The psalmist also writes in Psalm 34, verse 8, he invites us there, he says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Come, enjoy the, God's goodness for yourself. Experience it. Psalm 63, excuse me, 65, verse 4, We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, of your holy temple. Psalm 86, verse 5 also writes, For you, O Lord, are good and ready to forgive, abundance and mercy to all who call upon you. Psalm 19, 119, verse 68, You are good and do good. Uh, and then one last reference, remember in Luke 18, verses 18 and 19, there, um, there's a person who comes to Jesus and he says, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? There is no one, there is, there is no one good 
but one, and that is God. See, the Bible doesn't, he, the Bible clearly tells us and outlines that God is good. Know that this morning. God is good. His goodness is apparent. Even Jesus saying that. And this is that foundational truth that must be drilled deep into our lives, deep into our hearts. A truth that doesn't change that we can build our lives upon. You know, food always isn't good, is it? This week when we were, um, we were eating at my house and, uh, our, Eden, our little one, she, one of the things to keep her busy because she eats in like 10 seconds and, and Britt takes about an hour to eat if you've ever sat down with a meal with him. It's gonna be a long time. And so what do we do? We have to keep her busy. And so we often put down, uh, shredded cheese and she can just, it, it gives her something to be interactive with. And this morning, or this week when we put some shredded cheese there and then I looked at Olivia, I was like, do you smell that? And she's like, yeah. And that trees was a little bit old, and it was a little bit stinky. The food that we get always isn't good. But people are not good. Circumstances aren't always good. Know this, again, you might not feel good, but God is good. And we must be careful how we define what is good. That's the other aspect of it. How do we define what is good? See, God alone defines what is good because the Bible teaches that he is the source of all goodness. And how do we know that? See, well, somebody can say, well, that's relative. That's for you. For you, your God, right? They can come to us and say, well, maybe your God says that that's good, but I don't think that it's good that God would do X, Y, Z, that God says, you know, that you should only marry um, someone who's a Christian. Well, then what's defining their source of truth, Right? And so, okay, so how do you, how, what's your truth that you can say that, that murder isn't good? See, there has to be an ultimate truth. And so for us, we know that, that God is the ultimate truth, that He's the source of ultimate goodness. And we know even in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, that God made all things. And what did He do when He said, we're in the book of Genesis, He said, He looked around and He said, it is good. God is good. And He defines what is good. Notice too, when God created the world, when God established creation and he looked and he said it's all good, was that before or after Genesis chapter 3? Before. And it was Genesis chapter 3 where sin then entered into the world and now the world became fallen and the world is now tainted with sin. See, God isn't saying that all things now are good, but when God established it, when God created it, all things were good because he is only good. And God, know this too, can never be tainted by sin. God can never be tainted or, or we can say, um, changed or he can never become anything less than good. Satan takes what is good and he twists it. He calls what is evil good and what is good evil. And our, our perspectives, because we're inundated with the world and because we live in a fallen world, often become um, confused and we have to wrestle with these things. See, many of us mistake the goodness of God um, with the righteousness of our circumstances. What do we mean by that? We can say, again, if my circumstances outwardly aren't what I want them to be, if my circumstances aren't quote-unquote perfect, what maybe I expected, then God can't be good. Think about this. Let's, let's sit there a little bit longer. Um, one pastor, Pastor Ironside, if you've ever read him, he said this, and this is a longer quote, so bear with me, but it's going to come full circle. He says, we live in an age when everything good is interpreted 
in terms of happiness and success. So we think, excuse me, so when we think of spiritual blessings, we think in these terms. To be led of God and to be blessed by God means that we will be happy and successful. In fact, if a Christian does not appear to be happy or successful, there are scores of people who will be ready, like Job's counselors, to work to work with him or her to see what's wrong. This is shallow thinking and shallow Christianity, for God does not always lead his people into ways that we would naturally regard as happy or filled with success. Was Jesus happy? He was undoubtedly filled with joy and with all the other fruits of the Spirit, but he was also called a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Was Jesus successful? Not by our standards, nor by any standards that we may have been applied, that we may apply to him by anyone living in that time. Let us put this down as a great principle, and here it is. God sometimes leads his children to do things that afterward involve them in great distress. But because God does not think as we think or act like we act, it is often these situations that he accomplishes his greatest victories and brings the greatest blessing to his name. See, this is not popular today. It's not even, many would say this is uh, not a way to reach um, others because uh, people today aren't looking for truth, but they're just looking for how can I make myself feel better? How can I build my kingdom? How can I, I, I want a religion or I want a, I want a quote unquote God that will give me what I want. I, I want no problems in life. I want no sicknesses. I want the job that I want. I want to marry, um, I, I want to be married or have kids and I want to drive this car. And if that happens, then that's the God that is good. And they define, and what we're doing, what people are doing when they're saying that is they're making a God in their own image. They're making an idol. And we need to be aware of that. Because even uh, those, you know, if you've been walking with uh, the Lord for a while, it's easy to do that in our hearts without even realizing it. And being a Christian doesn't mean that your life will be imperfect or that you are in charge and it will happen how you want. Without realizing we build our life on the foundations of, of success or security by the job or by, by finances or by circumstances or by health or a ministry that looks a certain way. And those are the foundations that we are trying to build our lives upon. And see what God does is he comes and he, in his grace and again in his goodness, he strips those foundations away from us, doesn't he? He strips them away. He pulls them away. Why? Because see, all of these other foundations can be shaken in our lives. Every one of those. You could be the most wealthiest person, and then all of a sudden the stock market crash. Out of your control, you can have nothing to do with it. And then what happens? It's all gone. That foundation, your security is wiped away. You could be driving um, to the grocery store. You could be driving to church and, or home from church and be in an accident. And your life is now forever changed. The health, the, the freedom that you had, none of these things are guaranteed. Yet we can still subtly build our life and build our hearts upon those things. But God wants to shift our foundations away from those to the truth of who he is. And so even as we've been studying through the book of Genesis and we're looking, we've been looking at, at the life of, um, Abraham the past few weeks, remember 
Have you realized, kind of been following along big picture, what's been going on in Abraham's life? Remember in chapter 12, the Lord called Abraham from his country, from his culture, from his home, and he says that he's to leave his home, he's to leave his country, he's to leave his family, and that he's to go to a land that he would show him. And so what was God doing? God was teaching Abraham there's this call upon his life, and you're going to leave all those other things. They're not bad things necessarily. They're not bad. Family is good, and family's a blessing. But God was stripping that away from Abraham and from his heart. And he was teaching Abraham to build his life upon him. Soon what happened? Abraham left, but we saw that he still took Lot with him. And then what Lot ends up going to, towards Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham, to, uh, there's that separation again, right? And then Abraham goes, he's continuing to follow the Lord. And remember then what happens is that um, Abraham, we know that he goes and he saves Lot. But then Abraham, he has this promise of God that he would one day have a son, a child, and from that child, a nation um, would be raised up and the whole earth would be blessed. We know that ultimately that speaks of Christ. But that promise didn't come. That desire to have just a a son, a child. And what did Abraham do? Um, He and Sarah, they devised their own plan and they had Ishmael, right? Born in the flesh. So then what does God do? And this is actually, this will be a great segue for Tim next week. We're in chapter 22 of Genesis. Did you ever, did you go back and listen to uh, on Dwell? There's a, a Dwell app plug. Um, or did you read ahead and look at verse 1? In Genesis chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. In Genesis chapter 2 is where uh, the Lord tells Abraham to take his promised son, his long-awaited-for son, Isaac, and there to go up onto the mountain, right? And Isaac was going to be, uh, he told Abraham to sacrifice his son. So now even the promise is fulfilled, and that, that greatest desire that Abraham had, he was about to lose him. See, God was preparing Abraham. God was working in Abraham's life, and he was tearing away every other faulty, every other foundation that is not a true foundation, that Abraham's life would be be built upon who the Lord is. And sometimes the Lord does that same thing in our life. Because we, like Asaph, do this in verse 2 of uh, chapter 73. He says, But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. Excuse me, stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Again, he began to question the goodness of God. Notice that it's, the Lord isn't saying here, the Bible's not teaching. I'm not saying that it's it's a sin to question God. It's, we should be honest with God. He already knows our thoughts. So if we want to be self-righteous and say, well, I never question God. I never struggle with that. Well, you're only lying to yourself. Sorry. But we do. And see, even this often comes, though, by Satan. Genesis chapter 3, verse 5 says, For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and that you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan was telling Adam and Eve that God is not good and that he's withholding something from you. And when these questions come, our feet become slippery, right? We become like we were walking outside maybe in the snow. And, and, and there's just the, the foundation that our life was built upon. What's underneath of us just isn't as solid as we once thought. Lord, I, I can't reconcile this. And so what do I do? But verse 3, we, Asaph, he says, I've almost slipped, and this is why. 
He says, for I was envious of, of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. See, Asaph, we're not exactly told, and I'm thankful for this, what the circumstance in his life was. Did you realize that? It doesn't actually say that this is the exact circumstances. We're given a general circumstances uh, of that he was envious of the wicked. Those That just simply means that those who aren't following the Lord, those who, who want nothing to do with God, who aren't walking righteous, they were, they were prospering. But it's not the exact circumstance. Because I think, why? If God told us the exact circumstances, we would say, well, my circumstance isn't that circumstance. And so he, he leaves it open because he wants to minister to you and to me. Because guess what? In sometimes our questioning, it's going to be my circumstance is going to look different than yours. And so he's longing for the prosperity that the wicked, those who weren't following the Lord had. I want to experience that. They seem to have some type of security. And he describes this in verses uh, 4 through 12. Look there, he says, for they are not in pangs or they don't have any pain in their death. They seem just to slip off and to die. They don't ever suffer. They don't have a long-term illness. But their strength is firm. They are not in troubles, trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have so much, it's, their eyes are just popping out like a cartoon. More than they could ever desire or need or want. They have more than the heart could wish. Verse 8, they scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. And they speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore his people return here and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain. I've washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. You know, just a quick description Again, verse 4, they die without pain, and they die even in strength. There's no, there's no weakness, there's no, um, there's no kink in their armor. Verse 5, they're not, never in trouble or plagued. Verse 6, their life is filled with pride and violence covers them. They're abounding in fatness. Verse 7, they speak proudly. They put down others. And in verse 10, we see that... Uh, Many are participating with them. Verse 11, that they say that God doesn't know. They're not even acknowledging maybe that there is a God. Did you realize that? God doesn't know. He doesn't see. They're essentially saying, I'm my own God. Who is he? God doesn't know. What do you mean? And in verse 12, look at this summary. He says that they increase in riches and they're at ease. And, and sometimes we can do that same thing. Lord, I've been following you. Lord, I've been serving you. God, I've been seeking you. I gave my life to you, you know, 20 years ago, five years ago, five days ago. I don't know what it is. And now all of a sudden, everything has gotten worse. It's become a lot harder. It's become a lot more difficult. And everybody else, all my other friends, my family, who wants nothing to do with you, Lord, they're all at ease. There's nothing wrong with them. 
But we might even say, like um, Asaph, he said in um, verse 14, when you chasten me every morning, that means that the Lord's correcting him. That just means correction. Lord, why do you putting your finger on my life? And why don't you go, you're not even dealing with everybody else who wants nothing to do with you. See, Asaph is struggling in verses 13 and 14. He's concerned that he has uh, kept a pure heart for nothing. That's what he's saying. In vain, in emptiness, for no reason. Lord, I did what you asked me to do, and you didn't make my life better. I still have this hurt. I thought that if I if I gave my life to you, Lord, I thought I thought if I started to get real and deal with the sin in my life and get it out of my life, that that hurt would go away. That problem would never again strike me. He's he's plagued. He says, "Did you notice that?" In verse 14. And it's, and it's a plague, he says, that's all day long. It's, it's a constant pain that he has. Maybe even you, you're dealing with a constant pain that just doesn't go away. You've been struggling with it for a while. You're not alone. He says also this, that he's chastened, or like I said, corrected by the Lord. God, you know, can't you just go and convict somebody else? Can't you just expose somebody else's sin? Or there's people who are, are much worse than I am. Why are you dealing with me? In verse 15, he says, If I had said, if I had said, I will speak, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. What he's saying there is that he realizes that if he and he would go around saying this to others, that it would have caused others to stumble as well. See, and there's these times just when we're dealing with the deep hurts, the deep, deep questions of our life, sometimes we just have to sit with it. Sometimes there, there's the time to go and to uh, share with a friend, with a loved one, and, and, or, or maybe a, a pastor to, to have them just hear our hearts and to pour out our hearts to them. But he's also saying, and he's warning us, is that we can foolishly kind of just go off our rockers and just blurt it out to everybody that we know and cause others to stumble. The Lord wants us to first come to Him and just to sit with Him. That's what Job did, didn't he? Do you remember that? Job, his counselors were there, his wonderful, wonderful counselors, and telling him exactly what to do, what was wrong with his life. Job rebuked them, right? But in his hurt, Job didn't withhold his hurt and his honesty He withheld it maybe to others, but he didn't withhold it to the Lord. And he went to the Lord and he dealt with it between he and the Lord. And God wants us to first start there. But he also brings a body of believers for us to sit with and sometimes just to be present with us in those times in our life. In verse 16, he said, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Have you ever been in that place? Are you there this morning? It's just too painful. I can't even, I I can't make sense of it. I can't reconcile this, Lord. Why? Why would this happen? How would this happen? It's too painful. I can't understand. In verse 17, notice here, we see now a turning point in, in, jo- in Asaph's heart, in his life. He says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, 
He says, then I understood their end. And you might circle that. Notice there's a comparison in verse 16 to verse 17. In verse 16, it's to how, how I can understand this. It was painful. I can't understand this. And then he says in verse 17, now when I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understand their end. So everything begins to change. When does everything begin to change? When he went to the sanctuary. Well, where are you this morning? You are in the sanctuary, aren't you? You are in the sanctuary. Asaph, we might say today, Asaph went to church. It's when he went to church. He went to the place. He had a decision to make. See, it doesn't specifically tell us this, but... You know, I think many of us could come to this conclusion by the context. Asaph probably didn't feel like going to church. That's probably the last place he would want to be. No doubt Asaph was saying, I don't, why would I want to go there? Because that is the God who seems to be not good. I'm looking around, I'm seeing this, and it doesn't make sense. Lord, you're not intervening in my circumstances in my life. But he went to church. He decided that it's, that uh, although it might be easier to stay back at home in their tent or wherever they would live at that time, in, in their house, he still went. And he went to where God's presence was and where the Lord said that he would meet with his people. Do you know that that's true today? See, although we don't come and Asaph would have went to the tabernacle, this was before the temple was built, before David had Uh, excuse me, Solomon had built the temple. But the tabernacle was the meeting place of God. The tabernacle where is where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And the Ark of the Covenant and and, and, um, the mercy seat that sat over top of it with the, um, right, the cherubim, the wings of the cherubim. And there the presence, the Shekinah glory of God was to dwell. And the priest could go in there once a year and into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God. And there Asaph, as he would no doubt be walking to this, he would come and he would, you know, just again, what do you think about when you walk into church? You're looking at that building, this building from the external. You see the brick. You see the stained glass windows. You see the sign. And you all think, I can't, I hope there's still a donut left for me, right? I hope there's enough time that I can put my cream cheese on and the toaster line isn't too full or isn't too busy before I have to go upstairs. That's what you all think. No, that's what I think. Um, so we come and, and right, man, I, I come to church and, I, and I'm just reminded that's the place where God meets me. That's the place where I can go and I can worship in his presence. That's the place where I'm ministered to um, by the Holy Spirit as we open his word, his word that's alive and active, his word that the Bible tells us is a counselor to us, his word that gives us direction, his word that reveals truth to us. And we come and sometimes we come, we come to church and, and, and we come and, and, and it might even seem for maybe 15 minutes or, or the hour that you're here up in, being ministered to by the body of believers, you out there ministering to one another. That, that, that the pain, the, the questions, they just are set aside for a bit, right? It's not like we're, we're saying, we're not saying that Asaph came to church and all of a sudden it was a quick fix and it was like you got a shot or you took a pill and everything was now better in life. That's not what the Bible's saying here. But he came and he met 
the Lord where God promised and where God said he would meet him. See, I, I remember too, one person once said, well, I don't go to church on Sundays. I follow the Lord. I, I have a devotional that I read, but I meet God on the golf courses on Sundays. I meet him out in nature. Well, that's not, the, the Lord says that we are to not dis- despise the gathering of the body, right? We are to be in church. Why? Because you are the temple of God. See, it's not about the building. It's not about the brick. But God now says that he dwells within you, the Christian, and that you are now a priest, a generation of priests and priestesses to minister to one another. So God might have given you a word to encourage the weary heart, the hurting this morning. And you come and maybe your job is to minister to somebody this morning. But maybe, too, there's times when we come and we're the ones that need ministered too. But it's part of being in the body, of going even when we don't feel like it. There's many times when I don't feel like coming, when it's easier to stay at home. But you keep coming. That's where God meets us. And it's when he went into the sanctuary, he says that he understood their end. So before this, Asaph is saying that he saw a small snippet, a tiny little piece He saw their prosperity without any difficulty, without any um, challenge, without any problems in their life. But he's saying, Lord, now that I went to where you invite me to come and to meet with you, I see the whole picture. Do you see? Because God is not like us. God sees the beginning from the end. God knows what's ahead. And same thing in your life. God doesn't always choose to reveal us. And sometimes we think that if I knew the reason why, or if I knew the whole picture, then I would have a peace. But remember in Philippians, Paul writes that we're to be anxious about nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto the God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and mind through Christ Jesus. See, he promises a, a peace that doesn't come from understanding, but that is beyond our understanding. Peace doesn't come from understanding. It comes from the Lord himself, because he is the one who has made peace in Christ. And so, notice here, he again, he comes, he sees the whole picture, And that's what we do, guys. We come, and in verse 18, this is what he says. He says, surely, Lord, you have set them in slippery places. There's He he sees this transaction that begins to happen. My feet were in a slippery place. I was unstable. But, Lord, I see now when you showed me their end that they're truly building their life on a foundation that is not secure. They're not in a safe place. If you are, are on ice... It's not a safe place to be, is it? And that's their end. He says in verse 19, oh, how they are brought to desolation in a moment, and they are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so Lord, you awake, and you shall despise their image. Notice too, again, he was describing it from his perspective before verse 17, and he said that they are secure. They die in strength. They have no pain. They have no problems. They have all this abundance. They have this strength and security. But did you notice there he says in verse, um, in verse 19, the second half, he says that they are utterly consumed with terrors. See, now the Lord, who the Holy Spirit is able to search all things the Bible teaches us, 
And he sees within their hearts. And the word's saying that there's those who are refuse to follow him, and yet they're, they look secure on the outside. They say that they're secure, but within they're utterly consumed with terror. See, and, and, and that can be you and I. Guys, if you've never surrendered your life to Christ, you can put on the picture that you are fine. Everybody can look at your life and say that it's great, but you know within your heart is consumed with terror. You know that there's, there's something about you that isn't right. You know that you could never be good enough. And God, God is again in graciously revealing this to us in His Word. Not that He desires that any man should perish, but the Bible says that all should come to repentance and trust in the finished work of Christ. And so it's an invitation. Maybe you this morning, you've never given your life to Christ. Let today be the day of salvation. See, God will judge righteously in the end. And He's saying, those who, who re- are refusing the Lord, those who, who have never trusted, those who um, aren't going to the, the uh, tabernacle, where, the, again, it would be the covering of the blood, right? At that time, they were looking forward to Christ's coming, that there's this insecurity, and their, their end is that they will be destroyed. See, now we start to see perspective, God's perspective, from the beginning to the end. And that's the truth. That's what we need to know. See, there's an end for the wicked. But Asaph, in verse 21, he begins to repent. He says, Thus my heart was grieved, and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant, and I was like the beast before you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you, and you hold me by Uh, by my right hand, and you will guide me with your counsel and afterwards receive me to glory. Asaph realizes that he had an error in his thinking. There's this humility about him. He says that he was foolish, or he just means that he simply wasn't right. Where I was a fool. He was foolish for leaving God out of the equation. He was foolish for thinking, or excuse me, we could even say, for, and he admits that he was ignorant And when you're ignorant of something, what does that mean? It just means that there's something that you're missing. You don't have the, you don't know everything. I, I, God, now I realize that there was something that was unknown, that I was keeping out of the equation. And he says too that he was like a beast. And animals, you know, um, what are they most concerned about? Some of you have dogs. I know my sister has a dog and she can only feed it, I don't know how much it is, like three-fourths of a cup of food a day. Because if she just, if it was one of those self-feeding feeders, the dog would come and it's so self-consumed that it just eats and eats and eats until it makes itself sick and throw up. See, a beast or an animal is just consumed with their own desires. And, and Asaph is saying, Lord, I was only real, I was only concerned, I was only desiring thinking about myself. And yet, notice this, that Asaph had these questions, Asaph wrestled with God, but do you see God's response to him? Isn't that interesting? God didn't say, Asaph, you're questioning me. Asaph, you have, um, There's something difficult in your life that you're dealing with, that you're wrestling with. God didn't cast him off, did he? He didn't say, Asaph, you're a worship leader. You need to know better. You should know better. You're in ministry. Come on now. Like, buck up, kid. We get through this. But the Lord came and he just ministered to Asaph. 
That's encouraging. See, because no matter how, uh, how seasoned of a Christian, do you like putting it that way? Seasoned of a Christian, not an old Christian. But how seasoned of a Christian, how long you've been walking with the Lord, there's still going to be times where we no doubt question, where we have those deep struggles. So God upholds him through all of this. And God is upholding you. God wants to walk with you through these difficulties and through these questionings, and he will guide you. Again, Psalm 119.24 says that his word counsels us. And so that's why we need to be in his word like this. But notice in verse um, 25, he continues on and he says, Who am I in heaven but you? And is there none upon earth that I desire beside you? My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart, or my rock and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far from you perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry, or what that's just saying, who are unfaithful to you. But I love verse 28 where he says, But it is good for me to draw near to God. For I put my trust in the Lord, that they may declare all of your works. And this is the, this is kind of connecting it back up to verse 17. Asaph says here, this is what's good for me. Again, it was until, it wasn't until, um, Asaph went into the, the temple, went into the, not the temple, the tabernacle, the sanctuary. He went to where God invited him to come and to meet. Why? God could have met, um, Asaph in his tent or his house, whatever it is. I don't know what it's called. But there's something where God invites us to come and to participate with Him. Isn't it? God invites you to open His Word each day. And He, and He's given us an abundance. He gives us everything that we need, but He wants us to participate with Him. That willingness, that response in love to Him. And as we come, He doesn't say come perfect. He doesn't say come and, and according to your faithfulness to come, that I will meet you because you've been so faithful that the whole seven days of the new year, you've kept your devotional life, so I'll meet you because what's going to happen the eighth day, I'm not going to do it, right? He just says, come today. Come today and I will meet with you. And Asaph realizes that now, Lord, he didn't say, notice in verse 28, he didn't say, Lord, but it is good that you now changed my circumstances. He didn't say, Lord, it is now good that you destroyed the wicked. He didn't say, it is now good that you've blessed me financially or that you've healed me. He says this one thing, and it's this. It is good for me to draw near to God. Why? Why is that? And James 4.8 says this, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Because it was, remember again, going back to the beginning in Genesis, um, when God created the earth before sin entered in, he said, and he looked and all things, all things were good. But the true blessing wasn't that um, there weren't jaggers, right, or thorns, or there wasn't any animals that couldn't be killed. I know my one friend here would say, well, that's definitely not a good thing because he's an amazing hunter. But the goodness that, the, the reason that it was good, that God could look there um, and see that, it's this, is that there's perfect fellowship between man and God. 
It was, it was be, before sin entered in is that you and I, we were, Adam and Eve could be in the presence of God without any, constantly. There is nothing separating them. And that's what is good. See, yes, nature's wonderful. Nature's a blessing and it is good. But the true goodness is God's presence. That's what we desire. Even this, and remember in Exodus 33, they're like Asaph, Moses, he was troubled. Why? Because what happened? When Moses went up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments from the Lord, and he came back down the mountain, and he left the assistant pastor in charge, those are scary things. Tim, you better watch out what might happen the rest of the day. And he came back down, and Aaron, his assistant, right, that what was going on is that they, they had made a golden calf, they have taken all their gold, and now that they were having these sexual orgies and they were worshiping this golden calf as the God who now brought them out of Egypt, he, Moses was troubled. And what happened at that point then? Moses took the tabernacle, the sanctuary, where God said that he would meet with them, and he took it and out of the camp. Because God can't dwell in the presence of, of sin, of wickedness. And he took it outside. And he was concerned, why? Of God's presence with them. And remember there that the Lord said, well, Moses, um, just you can go on and, and I'll send my angels with you. But what did Moses say? He said, no, Lord, I'm not going unless your presence goes with me. See, there's, it, guys, it's the presence of God that you desire in your heart. We say and we think, and, and we're not making fun of anybody here, but we think that it's perfect circumstances that we desire, but it's not. You can have those great circumstances, but you'll still be empty. It's God's presence you desire. But what what happened here? Back Again, back in Exodus uh, 33, just bringing it full circle, he says, well, actually, let me read it. It's in verse 28 and through 33. Um, there Moses says, in verse 15, he says, If your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. Um, and then in verse 18, he says, And he said, Please show me your glory. Moses speaking to the Lord. In verse 19, And then he, the Lord, said, I will make my goodness, all my goodness, to pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But verse 20, he, the word said to Moses, you cannot see my face, you cannot see my presence for no, no man shall see me and live. And the, words, and the word said, here is a place by me and you shall stand on the rock and so it shall be that while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, or the afterglow. And by, and by excuse me, but my face you shall not see. But what, what do we see here? See the word goodness? Um, in verse 19, I will make my goodness pass before you, is the same word that, that um, Asaph says is uses in Psalm 73, verse 28. It is good for me that I should draw near to God. There the, the word says that I will make my goodness pass before you. Are you getting the connection 
The goodness is God's presence. The goodness is God's presence in our life. And Moses, what's the only way that he could see that he could experience God's presence here as he wanted to have um, see that experience God walk with him? Notice what the Lord says that I will hide you in the cleft of the rock and I will cause my, uh, I will pass by at that point. And guys, for you and I, we know that the rock is Jesus, isn't it? That when we're hidden, when we are hidden, our lives are hidden in Christ, the rock, the foundation on, upon which our lives are built upon, it's in Christ that now we can experience His goodness and His presence again. See, none of us deserve anything good because none of us are good. We're all sinners. And even think about this. What did Asaph see as he went into, to went, as he would be walking up to the uh, tabernacle? I kind of mentioned this. We see a brick building. We see a sign. We see some cars and we try to avoid the highway. Like, I hope that truck doesn't hit me as we're walking to the church. We see all these things, maybe a friend. But as Asaph would be walking to uh, the tabernacle, the tabernacle at that time, the Bible tells us that it's covered with badger skin. Badger skin being the same thing that sandals were made out of. Badger skin. Interesting. It's not that it was made out of um, nice, uh, I don't even know, I, I'm not fashionable, nice cloth like that are colorful and something that would be desirable for the eye to look upon. But badger skin, something that's despised even. Something that's not that fancy. Not that appealing to the flesh. He would also see... Uh, as he walked to the tabernacle, he would see the bronze clasps right around that the, the border around it. That would remind him bronze is always a representative of judgment, the judgment of God, and how judgment would come to Christ. He would be reminded of these pillars that the poles that were banded with silver, silver being the metal of redemption. He would be reminded that to go into this, uh, the, the sanctuary, into the tabernacle, there would only be, there was only one way in, right? There was one gate, one entrance. Be reminded about Jesus, who is the way, the gate, one way into the presence of God. And as he would go in there, as he would em- enter that out- outer court outside, he would see the bronze altar where the sin offerings would be made pointing forward and, and foreshadowing Jesus Christ, our sin, our, the offering for our sin. See, we deserve to be cut off. We destroyed. We are, we are the wicked. Guys, that's us. We, are the one, we all deserve to be cut off from God, to become overcome by our terrors, but God in His goodness sent Jesus to save you and I. See, and this isn't fair, is it? It isn't fair that Jesus would live a perfect life. That He did everything right and yet He experienced the fullness of this fallen world. That He was cut off. That He was talked about by these prideful religious leaders who put Him to death. It isn't fair that Jesus, the Son of God, even as He came, that He he came and there was no room for Him in the inn. No place that He had to be born in a stable. It isn't fair that He didn't even have, the Bible tells us, like the foxes, like He didn't have a place to lay His head. He had no home. That He chose to be poor. It isn't fair that Jesus was put to death for you and I. 
Seeing as as though that we look at the hands of Christ, at His head and at, at His feet, at His side, at His back, all these places that, that we were, that He was bled from as He took our punishment, we see God's goodness for us. God's goodness upon us. We see there God's love for us hanging upon the cross. And it's, and it's, a, it's at the cross then where we bring the bitterness of life, the situations of life that are difficult. And it doesn't change, it doesn't pick us out and put us in new circumstances of life. But it's there at the cross where the bitterness now becomes sweet again. Because I realize, Lord, that I, I don't deserve any of this. Lord, I don't deserve to be forgiven. I don't deserve to experience your presence. Lord, I deserve to be cut off. Lord, I deserve to die. See, because of Christ now, you can enjoy the presence of God again. And we see truly how good God is to us. But this is the awesome thing. Do you know that even for you, if, again, if you're struggling, maybe you're in difficulties of life. I know that, um, again, not everybody is in that place necessarily right now in life. Maybe there's some who are this morning, who are really wrestling, who are really hurting. Would you know that God is, it would just walk with you through this? It might be a while. You might never, never be delivered on this side of eternity. But this isn't the end. This isn't the end. The Bible tells us that one day that we will be with Him. And when we are, that it, when we're in His presence, that there's no more tears. There's no, there's none of that. He'll wipe them all away. But even in the midst of these struggles that we have, guys, that you are maintained by the grace of God. See, it's not Asaph's devotion. It's not Asaph's ministry that met him, that ministered to him, but it was the grace of God to meet him in his weakest point of life. And so too, God just wants to graciously, graciously maybe minister to some of you this morning who are hurting, just to be reminded of his love. Many of you, I know, have probably heard the gospel many, many times. You've grown in church. Maybe you even taught in some, circ- in some Sunday school or whatever it is. But do you know that God loves you? Do you need just to be reminded of that truth this morning? Some of us, God is, has us in these circumstances because He's teaching us and He wants to strip away all these other faulty foundations in our life. Not because He's, he's a dictator, not because He's coming at us and wants to teach us a good old lesson, but because He knows that they don't and they'll never give us the security that we truly desire. And so he's stripping away material possessions. Maybe there's situations that we don't feel are good. And maybe in our heart of hearts, he wants to teach us. We know intellectually that we're saved by grace and by the finished work of Christ, but our heart still operates under a different salvation. Maybe our heart still operates under a works-based salvation. And he wants to teach us that. And so he's allowing these things to happen in his sovereignty because of that. But do you know this? Truly, God is good. Truly, God is good. And so let's build our our lives, our foundations upon that. And so, Father, this morning we thank you for your word. God, I thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, we thank you that you aren't changing, that you aren't like man. God, that you can't be um, 
twisted. Lord, you can't be conformed into the image that we want you to be conformed into because you're not like us, God. And Lord, I'm also just reminded too that you're not like man that you, and you cannot lie. Lord, so when you tell us in your word that you are good, God, I thank you that you're telling the truth. And Lord, so Lord, we just pray for those who are hurting this morning, Lord, maybe those who are questioning you, Lord, those who just can't reconcile, Lord, when it's still too painful, Lord, to understand. Lord, would you meet them this morning, God? Would you um, just draw them back to your son? Lord, would you minister to them in your love and in your grace? Lord, we pray for um, just this body as a whole at Calvary Chapel, South Pittsburgh. Lord, would you use us, Lord, to minister to a world that's hurting, Lord, to a world that has questions, Lord? And would you bring many to come to know Christ through each and every one here? Lord, we pray for our pastor. Lord, we pray for Tim. We ask that you would heal his stomach. Lord, would you touch him, whatever it is that has caused that. And Lord, we thank you for these kids on this weekend and the way that you met them. Lord, the way that um, Lord, you've ministered to them. Lord, we pray that that work would continue Lord, throughout their lives. Lord, that you would use them in, in their schools, in their um, sports activities, Lord, in their interactions with others. Lord, and that you would raise up a generation that's going to follow and to serve you. And so, Lord, we are asking this in Jesus' name. Amen.